This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. And all we need is for you to call us. Now, the phones have been quiet this week, so we love your calls. 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email us uh, your question by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app, Uh, You'll be connected directly to our studio producer just by hitting the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else is hands-free. 340-9585. It's Tuesday. We don't have anything to talk about, so we'll get right to some questions. Our first question comes from Scott, and he says, In Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we're told to think about these things. Can you clarify that Please. Um, Scott, that's, it's, it's a pretty open in question. I'm not sure what you mean by clarify it, uh, but I'll do my best. I love this passage of scripture. Um, remember that Paul is talking to them about the peace of God that passes understanding. Uh, his warning is not to be anxious about anything. And I think verse 8 to finally, brothers, is exactly how we do it. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And here's the key, Scott, to it all. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And I think, now, th- this is just the way my brain thinks, God, but but um, I call this sort of replacement therapy. You know, there's an enemy that's always pounding us with doubts and fears, and, and there's things going on in the world that just wear us out. I have had uh, dozens of, of um, communiques today from, from people who are just overwhelmed. You know, there's times when everything that's going on just be, just gets to be too much. And we live in a world that's that's that way right now. And so instead of thinking about all the things that are going wrong, instead of entertaining those thoughts and trying, how do I deal with this? How do I do it? Instead, just transfer your thoughts to whatever is true. Well, we know Jesus is true. He is the truth. 
That means we don't have to be insecure and we can actually not be afraid. Whatever is noble, we know that the word of God, we know the character of Jesus, we know that the gospel of grace is noble and then some. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, we can think about those things. And basically we're thinking about Jesus. We're thinking about everything that he's done. And then he emphasizes through repetition If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So all we're doing, Scott, is taking our thoughts that are consuming us, that are overwhelming us, all of the the things that seem just never to go away, especially in this age of COVID. We're taking those thoughts and instead focusing those uh, that, that, that brain capacity on the things that God has done for us, the things that are good. And, and when he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, that's the key. It's not good just to know this stuff. we got to actually put it into practice. Now, one other thing, Scott, there's going to be a battle when you do that. The enemy doesn't want to give up his territory. You know, whenever we think about what I don't want to do or the things that are bothering me, the enemy is always going to keep bringing those thoughts back. That's when we have to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to the Lord. And so what we do is we put into practice the, the suggestions that Paul is communicating to us here in these two verses, and the result will be the peace of God will be with you. Now, Scott, I'm a, I'm a little concerned. Um, just the general condition of the world that we live in. Uh, post-election, we still got these um, divided hostilities that are overwhelming. You've got the 24-hour news cycle that wants to pound and pound and pound. And rather, Paul says, it'd be better if we'd let the Word of God do the pounding, if we'd let the Spirit of God do the pounding, replacing the difficult stuff, the scary stuff, the depressing stuff, replacing it with the things of God. If you'll do that, Scott, I think that's the key to making all of that work. So I hope that's what you meant um, in in asking the question. Uh, That's about the best I can do in terms of clarifying it, unless there's something more specific. And if that's the case, Scott, just please um, send another question in and we will uh, see if we can't get a little more clarity. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, Why do I have regrets for something I have done, even though I've repented, and I know I've been forgiven, and there is no condemnation? Um, Anonymous, this is is an area where we all fail to some degree, and most of the time we all fail completely, and we fail continually. That's because the enemy is stronger than we are. Um, if you know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, well, when you feel condemned, then you got to run away from condemnation. And that means you got to run to Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this again. I say it all the time to people. This Christian walk isn't as hard as we make it. Just be with Jesus. And you won't be feeling condemned. Now, the enemy is going to try to lie, and he's going to try to, 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 to condemn you. But see, if you're with Jesus, you're in the presence of grace. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to all ungodliness and to live upright lives in this present age. That's Paul writing to Titus. 
So you have regrets because, well, we don't do what we want to do all the time, and when we fail, we're disappointed. And we're sort of unwilling to let go of that guilt. When the enemy gets involved, anonymous, there's always a, a, a sense of, of um, I, I haven't felt bad enough, long enough. Romans 3.24 says that we have been justified freely. That means just as if we'd never sinned. And that justification that gave us freedom from condemnation occurred 2,000 years ago. So what is the practical value of holding on to it? Again, I realize we have habit patterns that we fall into. I realize that that there is a, a perverse pleasure that our flesh gets from feeling really, really bad about something. So when we finally let it go, we can justify that, well, you know, I really felt bad about it. It really stumbled me. Um, but, but I think the key to making sure that we don't have something else to regret later is to simply accept the forgiveness immediately and move on with Jesus. What that means is we've got to walk in faith in spite of how we feel we got to trust that God's word is true, whether we feel forgiven or not. And we run to the presence of Jesus. And when we do that, then it goes away. So Anonymous, that's the best I've got for that. It's just remember, that's always the enemy. And he's bringing you poison. He's bringing you poison. Here is a question from Linda. Pastor Ron, will you please explain 1 Corinthians 6, 3? Uh, yeah, Linda, let me read it. It says, uh, Paul's writing, he says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Um, in context, and I'll be teaching this in uh, uh, shortly after the first of the year. We're in 1 Corinthians on our Sunday morning studies. Um, in context, they're, they're taking... Uh, Christians to court before unbelieving judges. And Paul is scolding him. You know, the fact that you're in court, the fact that you're suing one another means you've already lost. And this rhetorical question, do you not know that we will judge angels, um, uh, is, is a reference to a time in the millennium when uh, just before or at the great white throne, when the angels uh, are judged along with all of the others who have rejected Christ throughout history, um, we're going to judge him. That doesn't mean we're going to sit with a robe and we're going to have a gavel and we're going to pronounce something. But, but you see, our witness, nobody's going to be able to say, well, I didn't know. Because we are going to be there and just the example of our lives is going to be a witness. i got to tell you, Linda, God saved me. There's no excuse for anybody not being saved. And so I think the fact that I could get past my sins, that I could accept, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus' free gift of grace, means that everybody throughout history could have done the same thing. So everybody will be without excuse. And the application, how much more the things of this life, and basically what he's saying to the Corinthians is, it would be better for you to be wrong for the sake of Christ than to win in a 
courtroom setting to uphold your rights when you're going to law against another believer. So we're going to judge angels, but I don't think Jesus, all judgment we know has been given to him, to Jesus. So when that doesn't mean we're going to judge them personally, but our lives are going to be a witness that will help execute judgment. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Everyone will be without excuse. Chris wants to know, is Molinism correct in its perspective or in its view? Um, Chris, this is a long, complicated um, um, doctrinal discussion. Molinists are... um, they're very ardent in their view. Molinism, basically, and I'll give it as, as short as I can, Molinism explains how a man can have free will and God can be sovereign at the same time. I personally don't think there's any tension at all between those things. But in short, Molinism is saying that God is going to anticipate everything that is going to happen with our free will choices and then countering those choices we make with his sovereignty. In other words, I make a, a mistake, God then finagles something else on the other end of that mistake to sort of counter. It's, it's like betting in a, in a card game. You know, well, I bet this amount of money. Somebody says, well, I call you and raise you. Uh, that's, that's kind of what Molinism is in a spiritual perspective. And I think the most important thing, Chris, is simply to understand that there is no tension between free will and man's free will and God's sovereignty in the first place. Of course, God knows every choice we're going to make because God lives outside of time and space and God knows everything there is to know. So God doesn't have to counter it. I mean, God has known this from the beginning of time. Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You don't need to, to, to dig into Molinism to understand that. I personally believe that God's sovereign power is never on greater display than when he can take those who hate him, those who oppose him, those who are rebelling, out, just out and out rebelling against him. He can take those choices, those people, and still make sure that his will gets done. Paul and I, we, we talk about this all the time. We, we uh, Paula has a, a, used to, I think somebody took it, but um, a, a Rubik's Cube. And, and I, I always picture God taking the Rubik's Cube that's all messed up and just in an instant, and then everything is the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I've got a Rubik's Cube right here in my office that I'm looking at right now here in the studio. And, and that's what God does. And that's power. So I don't think we need to coin Molinism. We don't need to champion Molinism. It's not like God is, is, is watching what we do and then one-upping us. I think that minimizes the power of God. God simply knows the choices we're going to make. He's made provision that we can be free from those choices. And whether we accept that freedom or reject that freedom, God is still going to accomplish his will. Now, as Christians, we can quench the Spirit, we can resist the will of God, but that still doesn't keep God from accomplishing His will. The choice we make, Chris, is whether or not God gets to use us to accomplish it. 
And that's really important because on the day we stand before the Lord to have our works examined, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and um, Romans chapter 12. When we stand before God to be judged for our works, for the quality and the content of our works. Um, when we do that, God's already got a, an answer. Good question. Hector wants to know, Pastor Ron, have you ever led an, an LDS member to Christ? And what is the best way to approach them? Hector, I touched on this yesterday when uh, um, somebody asked about, uh, about Mormonism. Uh, I have led um, Mormons to Christ, not a huge number of them because we don't live in a, in a heavily uh, LDS area, um, but um, um, a few times. I've led Mormons to Christ. Uh, the best way to approach him, I said on the program yesterday, was just uh, challenge him to read the Bible for themselves, independent of any of the Mormon propaganda. Um, so I, I just think that's the best way to approach them. The one thing you've got to understand, Hector, is if they're unwilling to listen, there's nothing you can do. There's no argument. There's no um, surefire way. There's no formula. It has to be move the Spirit. And for the Spirit to move, remember, He won't impose His will on them, but for the Spirit to move, they have to be willing to listen and honestly evaluate what they're hearing or what they're reading. Uh, on the program yesterday, to answer the question, uh, the friend that I have in Utah, um, you know, he, he said there's, there's a whole bunch of times when Mormons will tell him, look, even if you prove to me what I believe is wrong, I'm not going to change because I'm a, I'm a Mormon from cradle to grave. And boy, that's a real cavalier approach to eternity for sure. So yeah, I have led a few. You know, um, Hector, it doesn't happen anymore, but when we first moved to Universal City, it seemed like we were getting both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons knocking on our door all the time. There was a uh, uh, a couple of elders that used to... I, I, I've walked Pat Booker Road, I don't know, thousands of miles in our 25 years here. And um, um, I'd stop and talk to them sometimes. Once in a while, they'd stop and talk to me. And... Um, when we invited some over, I said, you know, stop by, we'll give you a sandwich, and they did. And um, they started to share with me, and I was answering their questions and asking them questions. And they were completely frustrated, and, and you could see that, that they were questioning what they believed. And um, I didn't see them again. A couple of weeks later, they come back with one of their superiors, an older, more mature Mormon and he just didn't want to listen to anything. So we just ended the conversation. If they don't want to hear, um, there's nothing you can do. So pray for them. Don't get mad. Don't get frustrated. When they stop listening, you stop talking. Here's a question from Benjamin. He says, I'm looking for a new church. I would like to find one where most of the people are around my age. And he says, I'm in my early 20s. Can you recommend a church where I would be comfortable? Benjamin, you know, I really can't. I, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of generational churches. And by that I mean um, young people saying, well, we're going out for the young generation. 
uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's got a, a young son whose entire ministry is built on reaching uh, his generation. Um, and, and I think that's arrogant. I think that's arrogant. I, I don't think God would shut the door to anybody. God is not a respecter of persons. And so uh, I would just tell you, Benjamin, that you're probably, um, if you find a church like that, you're going to get ripped off as a result. You know, to be cool, to be hip, to be the happening church uh, isn't always the right thing. Because what you're going to do is you're going to end up um, lowering the bar to get the people in that you want them. And if you entertain them, uh, if you you try to get them in with your style, then you're going to have to try to keep them there with your style. And I just don't think it's very effective. Um, What I have found, Benjamin, and this is based on my 25 years here, uh, I I started this church when I was uh, 45. And... um, that seemed old then, but now it seems so young. But um, I just realized that I'm going to open the Bible and teach it. And then the Holy Spirit is going to bring people that need to be here. We've never marketed our church. We've never tried to, to figure out ways to get people to come in. Uh, we just show up, prepare to teach the Word. And we do it, and then the Holy Spirit brings all kinds of people. And Benjamin, if you were here at our church, you'd look around, you'd be amazed at the diversity in our church, the racial diversity, the age diversity, the economic diversity of people in our church. And we exhort them, and we encourage them to to not settle for anything less than what God wants. And what we find out is God brings people to us that he's prepared to be ready. Another real problem looking for a church filled with people your age is you're showing a bit of prejudice. How can God honor that? And you're missing out on what people have to offer you. That's the beauty of the body. The uniqueness of people and their experience. You're missing out on that. Believe me, if you're in your early 20s and you get married, uh, you're going to want, when things get tough, you're going to want somebody who's been married for 40 years or more. And and, and if you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, you're going to need somebody who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years who can answer the questions you have. So uh, I think personally that a church that is age-specific, as you seem to be asking for, uh, I think that is... Um, not only unwise, but I, I think it's it's doomed to frustrate you. So I wouldn't worry about being comfortable. I'd worry about learning the Word, um, using the gifts that God has given me to serve, and to love people, no matter how old they are. And uh, I would always ask for help when I needed help. And often that help comes from people who are older than we are. Here's an anonymous question. It said, does having sex with someone automatically make you married, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 16? Uh, verse six that, the verse says this. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? 
for it is said the two will become one flesh. That's not a reference, Anonymous, to marriage at all. Um, no, just having sex with somebody is sin. You're not married to them, that's sin. It does not make you married, nor does just running out and getting married justify um, you wanting to have sex with somebody. In this particular case, Paul is dealing with an issue in Corinth. And that issue, remember, the, the, the temple of Diana, um, Aphrodite, uh, was there, and there was all kinds of, of so-called sexual worship fe- feasts going on. And Paul's basically saying, no, and this is a passage of Scripture, um, it says, no, you, 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 you're one. If you do that, you're, you're becoming one with this prostitute, male or female. They had both male and female prostitutes. Um, Aphrodite did. And, um, and, and that's not the purpose of marriage. So no, you, you're not automatically married because you have sex with someone anonymous. I think probably you knew the answer to that. And it's better that we don't try to justify at all um, doing what we know is sin. So I hope that makes sense. See, we have one minute left? Okay, one minute left. We don't have time to go on to a next question. We'll do that on the top of the break. Remember, um, we'd love to have your calls and questions. It's more interesting to listen to you than it is just to listen to me. Um, This has been the Word to Stand On for Life. Our phone numbers are 340-9585. That's 210-340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we will be back on the other side of the break. We will see you in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I like this question from Damien. It's actually spelled D-A-M-I-A-N, Damien. So it says, um, I think the world is ripe for the Antichrist. Your thoughts, please. Uh, Damien, um, I think the world is so ripe. We are so easily seduced into believing anything. Uh, and I think, yes, the world is ripe for the Antichrist. Now, i got to say this in, in advance. I'm not a conspiracy person. I don't listen to Alex Jones. I don't go on the net checking things out. But there's one conspiracy for sure that is undeniable. And that is a conspiracy the devil has been involved with, with this world and with our flesh from the beginning of time. And he is training us. And we can see uh, that we're being trained. He's training us to give up our freedom. He's training us to be away from church. He's training us. How quickly did we give up the constitutionally guaranteed right to go to church because of this epidemic? 
has got us wearing masks when masks have been proven to be of no value. So yeah, I think the world is ripe for the Antichrist. It's easy now for me to see how he's going to come in, seemingly he's going to solve some problems, and when he solves those problems, we're all going to just think, oh, finally somebody's here to take care of us, when in fact the only person to take care of us is Jesus. So those are my thoughts, Damien. I agree with you completely. Uh, I do believe that the world is ripe. Let's go to line one and talk with Phyllis from San Antonio. Phyllis, thanks for breaking the ice. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Pastor Ron, I was having a conversation today with a young lady, and it kind of took me aback. We, Well, I was saying that we celebrate. We celebrate Christmas in, in our home before we open up any gifts or anything that where we uh, read the uh, story uh, in Luke 2. Um, mm-hmm. And then she said, well, Christmas is a pagan holiday. And then she said, Easter is a pagan holiday. I said, well, we don't necessarily call it Easter. We, we call it uh, Resurrection uh, Sunday, and we talk about, you know, the morning that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and the tomb was empty and so you know and then she asked me do we celebrate the sabbath uh do we keep that holy and i said well um when jesus rose uh of you know from the dead we celebrate sunday not necessarily saturday slash the sabbath and I, we were just talking, I said, well, when Jesus rose, there's a new covenant now. Uh, you know, it's it's not the old covenant anymore. And she said, well, you guys don't celebrate the different feasts, um, feast of unleavened bread and, and all like that. And I said, well, no, um, you know, because Jesus, he is the perfect sacrifice. We don't need to bring mm-hmm. the fruit, first fruits anymore and you know, uh, he is the Passover lamb. Uh, but she was just very adamant about that. And, and of course, listening to Paula's uh, Bible study last night about uh, the tongue, you know, just pacing <laughs> myself. And as you said, you know, we don't get in an argument. We, we just walk away from it. And so I, I just told her that I would do a study of, on my own and let the Holy Spirit speak to me, but I didn't believe uh, that um, about the first fruits and uh, all, uh, celebrate those feasts of unleavened bread because Jesus has taken care of all of that. And I was trying to find in the scriptures where you had mentioned before, uh, after, I don't know if it was uh, during Jesus' ascension, that everything was settled. And so that was the scripture that I was trying to find, but also just wanted to get your take on, on the different feast. And, um, I, I don't believe that. I mean, Christmas, yes, it could be for, um, I don't think it's a pagan holiday, so to speak, but I think commercially, yes, people, uh, buy into that. But for us believers, we know why we celebrate Christmas because the greatest present we received was Jesus Christ. But I just want to get your, I want to get the scripture for sure where uh, Jesus uh, went. I think when he ascended, I think that's right, Pastor. I'm not sure. But if you could give me that scripture that I can at least share with her, you know, whether she receives it or not. But just 
if you could just kind of get me straight on on what it is you know yeah, I'm yeah, looking I, for. I, I think I can, Phyllis, but you're, you're straight already. What you've encountered is a legalist, either a Seventh-day Adventist or, um, 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 you know, a, a Jew um, or a, a Gentile who, who takes a Jewish perspective on the scriptures. A um, couple of things. And let me start with the easiest ones with, with Christmas and Easter. And she is right in the fact that both of those holidays uh, had their roots or their origins in pagan theology. Uh, Saturnalia is Christmas, and and um, Easter was a time when they celebrated fertility rites and rituals, uh, and that's what they're for. Now, what God does, um, what Jesus specializes in, is taking that which was once pagan and turning it for his glory, and that's what we do. You know, that's what he did with me. I was once bringing glory to the devil and um, rebelling against God. He took this pagan and, and, and picked me up and turned me around and started heading me in the right direction. And, and now we're walking, I hope, for his glory. So uh, they're right in the origins, but their understanding is wrong. What, what we've done is we've taken that which was uh, intended for evil and we've turned it to good in a way that, that honors the Lord. With regard to the Sabbath... Uh, it's a first century church. You can go through the book of Acts. Uh, you can also read about it in Paul's epistles. Uh, when you gather on the first day of the week, um, um, the, the, the first century church began to um, celebrate the Sabbath. Remember, it was a completely Jewish church at, at the beginning. And yet it was, it was that group of apostles those who are the foundation of the New Testament church, they're the ones who changed the day of worship to the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection. So that's really, really important. Uh, Jesus said, I think the passage of Scripture you're talking about, fellas, is in the upper room just before Jesus went to the, uh, to the cross when uh, what we call the Last Supper. Uh, when he lifted the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And that new covenant obviously replaces an old covenant. And so we're no longer tied to the, the old covenant. We're no longer bound by it. That covenant has been satisfied by Jesus Christ. With regard to the feasts and the festivals, Jesus is the fulfillment of those festivals. So we don't need any longer to keep the, the picture of Jesus because we have the reality of Jesus. Not only do we have a relationship with him, but he actually lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I used to explain this, um, uh, Phyllis. I've got a picture of Paul at home that I've had. I've been carrying around since we were kids. And, and together we, we, we met when we were kids. We've been together for more than 50 years. And when, um, when I, 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 as much as I love that picture, when I go home and I see that picture on the wall, I don't take that picture off the wall and hug it and kiss it. I'd be silly to do that when I've got flesh and blood Paula right there and I can grab her and I can hug and, hug and kiss her. That's the fulfillment of what that picture promised. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the pictures of those festivals. And what you've got is either a an SDA, Seventh-day Adventist, or a, 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 a Torah-observing um, uh, uh, Christian 
Um, they're probably saved, but, but boy, the legalism, Phyllis, there's no joy and there's no peace. So it's not something you got to do any more study on. It's just really, really clear. And, uh, um, they have to receive it to enjoy it. One of the things about legalism is that it is the least attractive form of Christianity ever. And and believe me, there are legalists who are real believers. They're going to be in heaven, but they're going to really, really, really be sad on all they missed out on. So, Phyllis, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much for your question. 340-9585. We got a question, Jill. She's not on the line, but she called the studio. Uh, what is, well, it's Seventh-day Adventist question. Good. What does pastor think about the Seventh-day Adventist celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday because they believe that celebrating on Sunday is blasphemy? Um, Jill, what I just explained to Phyllis, um, they believe it. They believe it with all of their heart, uh, but they're just wrong. I mean, how would a Seventh-day Adventist, Jill, tell the Apostle Paul, who said, when you meet on the first day of the week, how would they claim accuse him of being a blasphemer. He wrote a whole bunch of our New Testament. So um, the Seventh-day Adventists every day can be, I don't object to them celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday, but the insistence that everybody else needs to be, you know, there is a a fringe of the uh, SDA church that believes that uh, only the Christians found celebrating um, on the original Sabbath, celebrating the original Sabbath, are going to be taken in the rapture of the church. Now, most Seventh-day Adventists don't even believe in the rapture of the church. But but the idea is Seventh-day Adventists are simply legalists. They're wrong. Uh, there is a lot of wonderful... Jill, if you've, if you've got somebody um, who you're trying to share with, there's a, a, a Calvary Chapel pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. His name is Mark Martin. And uh, you can go to Calvary Chapel in Phoenix. It's the biggest Calvary Chapel in the Phoenix area. Uh, He is a former Seventh-day Adventist, and he has a lot of resources um, um, regarding Seventh-day Adventism uh, on his website uh, that you can get for free. And uh, lots and lots of people have been converted over the years. Um, But Seventh-day Adventists are wrong Um, often. They are miserable in terms of of their walk because they feel like they're 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 putting burdens on themselves that nobody nobody can keep, and they miss the point. Uh, they don't study their Bibles. Again, I'll repeat what I said to Phyllis. Jesus picked up the cup when he was saying goodbye to his disciples, and he said, "This is the cup of the new covenant." Paul writes about this in Romans. The old covenant was canceled. He says the same thing to the Galatians and to the Colossians. The old covenant, which was against us, was canceled. Jesus canceled it. And we have a new covenant, the covenant of grace. So, Jill, hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much for calling in your question. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I've heard you say you're opposed to goosebump Christianity. What's wrong with being emotional in our worship? Can you clarify what you mean and why? I can, Anonymous. um, There's nothing wrong with being emotional. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being emotional. But goosebumps uh, aren't substance. You know, we can 
um, uh, worship, we can run around, we can do crazy stuff, and we can get goosebumps all the time. So when I say goosebump Christianity, what I mean is experience-based Christianity. I want to walk by faith, trusting in the Word of God, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. When I'm under attack by the enemy or when I'm dealing with really hard things like we're all dealing with now um, in 2020, I want substance. I don't want goosebumps. I can work up goosebumps, but you know, when the goosebumps go away, there's still all of those problems. And so when I say I'm opposed to goosebump Christianity, it's not healthy. Anything based on our emotional response has no substance to it whatsoever. And the truth of the matter is, Anonymous, that that when we're walking with Jesus, it doesn't matter whether we're emotional or not. If we're walking in his will, according to his word, then we know for sure that what we believe is true. We are, are, are difficult for the enemy to destroy. And we're not going to be prone to other people uh, who are always going from one experience to the next experience. Uh, I want to be able to count on my relationship with Jesus. And the reasons I say just be with Jesus so much is because that's the reality. And that reality has nothing whatsoever to do with feelings or emotions. So that's what I mean. Um, I am often very emotional in worship. It does not mean I'm loud or disruptive. I want to make that clear. But 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 worship is emotional. Um, there are times when uh, the Holy Spirit will hit, uh, we're singing a song, uh, and the Holy Spirit will just pierce my heart. Um, just this past week, um, uh, our worship team was doing a song, and as soon as they started singing it, my worship pastor cried. He started cries all the time, and and uh, I, I was emotional anyway, and I started to cry. I got I can't do this. I got to go up and talk in a minute. And I have a microphone in my face. So there's nothing wrong with being emotional, but remember, emotions are not stable. We can't depend on them. So our worship, Jesus said. The Father's looking for those who would worship in spirit and in truth. So the basis of our worship has to be in spirit, in the will of God, and it has to be based on the truth of God. And there are a lot of times when knowing the truth doesn't make you feel very emotional, but it's still true. So Anonymous, that's what I mean uh, when I talk about goosebump Christianity. Uh, we want something of substance rather than just a change in the way we feel about something, because those emotional changes simply do not last for very long. Jack asks, and I'm not sure exactly, Jack, what you mean, when did the true church begin, and did that church favor a specific denomination or style? Um, Jack, the true church began uh, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, um, that was a church that, that started out with about 120 people in it. Uh, and then um, uh, 3,000 got saved on that first day. A couple of days goes by and there's another 5,000. But that's when the church began. And the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 was the church's birthday. So that's when it began. And, and, and uh, you know, the church was, there was such unity. There was no thought of denominations or splitting or splintering over different beliefs. Remember, in the first church, everybody got saved was brand new, and they needed to be taught. And so the disciples who became apostles 
who would sit down with open Bibles and wherever the, the, the Spirit of God sent them, they simply taught people to cling to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, to cling to the apostles' doctrine. That would be like me saying, okay, open your Bible, dig in, and hold on to it, and don't be moved from it. So the church has always favored a Bible-based, not tradition-based, a Bible-based theology. And if you do that, Jack, then you're going to be in pretty good shape, and you don't need to worry. Now, churches, there's throughout the the centuries, uh, false doctrine came into the church in the first century. Um, You can go to the book of Acts, um, um, Acts chapter 8, and and see where Simon the sorcerer in Samaria was trying to draw people away from him. So false teaching uh, infiltrated the church almost from the beginning. And as soon as it was false teaching, there was people making decisions, and they were sort of hanging around with people who um, believed what they believed. Not so in the first century church. They got along. They loved one another. Uh, Denominations are not a result of strong faith or correct doctrine. Denominations throughout the centuries, these schisms in the church throughout the centuries, has been a result of weak faith and um, people taking the easy way out instead of bearing with one another in love. uh, We just decide to move on, go our own direction so we don't have to be challenged. Jack, I can't tell you over the years, now 25 years here, I can't tell you how many times people have come to me um, before or after a service with one purpose, and that's to argue with me. Why didn't you speak in tongues? Or, or why don't you believe this? Or why don't you believe that? And, you know, that's not spirit. That's flesh when it happens. So what we've decided we're going to do, Jack, is we're going to teach the Bible the way they did it in the first century, the, the original church. And we're going to get our systematic theology from the Word of God. And I have no problem saying to somebody, look, this is what the Bible says, and this is why we do it. I'll give you one example, and, and then I'll move on. Um, uh, several years ago now, many years ago now, uh, there was a big movement in, in, in the San Antonio area about uh, Jesus-only groups. They had a big presence on public access TV, and they were sending people around to different churches to try to get people to understand that Jesus-only uh, oneness Pentecostalism or oneness theology is it. And they would say, well, well, what name do you baptize in? And my answer was, well, I baptize the way the Bible says. I baptize the way Jesus said. Well, what do you mean? You baptize in Jesus' name? No, Jesus is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, everybody knows that's in the Bible. It's in red letters. And yet they wanted to argue about that. I just simply refuse to get drawn into the argument. They say, oh, you just don't want to debate. You're afraid that, that, that we'll challenge you. No. I just want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about these arguments. So it's that kind of a spirit, Jack, that forced people to divide. Sometimes the divisions are good, uh, even necessary, um, but most of the time they're born in the flesh. William says, does every church have an offertory time of worship? Um, William, no, of course not. We don't here at Calvary Chapel. Um, We don't pass an offering. The offertory time of worship 
is a song where usually after an announcement regarding um, the offering that's going to be taken, um, the music is played. Often it's a solo artist, and he or she will sing uh, while the the offering is being passed out. And uh, they'll do that, and a lot of times the songs take a little bit longer than normal uh, so they can make sure everybody gets an opportunity at the plate. Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing it that way at all, um, but certainly we don't in the churches we've planted and, and many of the churches in and around the San Antonio area um, don't even consider taking an offering. We just have decided at Calvary Chapel, or, or many of us at Calvary Chapel have decided that we're going to put offering boxes in the back of the sanctuary or in the foyer, um, making giving available online. But we're not going to let our needs be known, nor are we going to ask anybody to give. We don't want an offering to be a guilt offering. We want somebody to to to, to give to the Lord because they love Him, because they're grateful. We want to give with a cheerful heart because that's what Paul says God loves. A, 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 somebody who gives with a cheerful heart, a hilarious heart, is the literal translation. So we've done everything we can, William, to uh, deformalize the giving, um, just leaving it between the member of the church and the Lord. And um, God has turned our church into a pretty generous group of people as a result. Having said that again, I want to emphasize, so I'm not misunderstood, there is nothing at all wrong with having an offeratory or passing a communion plate. Or, I mean, a, an offering plate or bucket or bag or whatever it is they do with it in those days. Okay, i got two minutes. Let's see if I can do it in real time. Beth says, what does it mean in 1 Corinthians 11 to take communion unworthily? Um, Beth, two things. It means to take it as an unbeliever. You know, just because you're in a church and, and everybody else is taking it, um, if you're not a believer, it is a family celebration. I always make that announcement when we do Communion Sundays. Um, but but it also means, and I think this is even the greater application, uh, for a professing believer who is willfully sinning against God, somebody who has got sin in their life and they refuse to repent, I tell them in our church that it is dangerous for them to partake of communion. Some in Corinth were sick. Some had even died, Paul said, because they partook of communion unworthily. And every time that we come to the Lord's table, we need to realize, like Moses had to hear God say, take off thy sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Um, We need to understand that communion table is holy ground. And we're mocking the sacrifice of Jesus, if we participate in communion when we are in sin, unwilling to repent. Sometimes we might even convince ourselves it's not sin, but we don't allow the Holy Spirit to examine our heart. That is what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. And I really plead with our people here on every communion Sunday, if that describes you and you're not willing to repent, then please don't partake. So, Beth, I hope that makes sense. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, the word, Lord willing. And we'll see you then. Have a wonderful evening in the Lord. Bye-bye.